Well, Keystone, good morning. It's good to have you join us online. In fact, this is probably the, it could be the third video that you've seen from Keystone this week. If you would have seen our pastor sermon reflection on Wednesday and seen the big announcement that we had for the congregation about reopening on Friday, uh, we're, we're glad that you are continuing to interact with us online. Lord willing, we will be able to see each other uh, and worship together face to face soon. If you did not get an email from Keystone on Friday uh, that would have included a video uh, and survey about reopening, uh, would you please send an email to info at keystonechurch.org and let us know uh, that you have not received uh, interaction uh, from Keystone uh, via email. Uh, and we'll correct that matter to get it into your hands. Uh, we would love to be able to hear back from you. Uh, after you watch that video, let us know what your thoughts are on reopening uh, by clicking the link that's uh, to a survey to describe um, how we will open up in large group gatherings. As we look forward to the summer, uh, there are some important news uh, about VBS, and I want to turn it over to uh, our uh, VBS specialist, Becky Colbert. Hi, Keystone family. As you probably heard or figured out by now, we will not be hosting our Vacation Bible School here on church campus. Instead, we are relocating it to your homes and backyards by reconstructing it into a staycation Bible School instead. This year's theme is Concrete and Cranes, and it's a construction theme that we just know you're going to love. So with this construction theme, there will be lots of talks about buildings and foundations. So we know that a building needs a strong foundation, right? Just like our lives. Our lives need a strong foundation too. So kids here are the message from the world that in order for a solid foundation in life, they maybe need to get a good education or get um, excel in sports have a good strong work ethic, or have experiences. And they are hearing that they need all of these things in order to be secure in life. But God has a drastically different message. He says that I and I am alone are the most trustworthy foundation. Through the resources that we are providing kids through our Staycation Bible School, they're gonna hear that message over and over again. The memory verse for this year's Staycation Bible School will be found in Philippians 1.6. And it says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. This is what our kids can be confident in, our God's faithfulness. So for our Staycation Bible School, we are keeping the same dates that we had originally planned. Day one will be on Sunday, June 28th, and wrap up on Thursday, July 2nd, before the holiday weekend. There will be a Popsicle and Kit drive through on Wednesday, June 24th, from 5.30 to 7.30 here at Keystone Church. And that's where your family will receive your kit for the week, as well as a treat for everyone that's in the vehicle. And in the kit, you will find all of the week's materials that you will need for the Bible lesson, the craft, the snack for each day, um, and all of that will be in your kit for you. Even the music CD will be in there. So to help us prepare these kits and to reserve one for your family, we're asking you to register your family on the Church Center app. So if you have that, you can go ahead and do it now. Um, or you can go to keystonechurch.org VBS and register your family there. After you register, you will receive a unique web link where you will have access to intro, intro videos for me each day. There'll be the Bible songs with motions, the Bible memory verse with motions, um, mission videos, and more. So, and hey kids, to get you jazzed for the week, each day of our Staycation Bible School, you will have a chance to dress up with like our dress up theme days, uh, maybe even do some house decor, and you'll be able to compete and engage with other families by posting photos online. So we're so excited for our Staycation Bible School, and we're asking for families, if you can, to register before June 17th so we can reserve a kit especially for you. So we are excited to build a strong foundation in Jesus together. Thanks. We are looking forward to kids' ministry this summer uh, and to you being able to gather together in your homes uh, to be able to worship with friends and family. As we think about the online experience, preaching, it's a pretty good substitute. Uh, prayer, it's okay. Singing, it gets a little worse. 
And by the time we get down to fellowship, it's just hard to do certain things online. And that's one of the ways that we are looking forward to you being able to gather together in small groups, uh, to be able to worship together, uh, interact together, um, pray with one another, sing with one another. And so hopefully next week, uh, you won't be in your home alone, but maybe with friends and family being able to tune in. I'm going to pray for us as we begin our worship service and would encourage you to be praying that the Spirit of God would be using these times, uh, despite the fact that we are not all in one building, to be able to speak to our heart, uh, to to mold our minds, uh, that we might be a people shaped by the good news of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn our face to you. And as we look across the horizon of our globe and our nation, Lord, we ask for your healing. We ask for healing from the virus, that all of its effects, that you would restore us to physical health, to economic health, to relational health, that we might be able to emerge from this stronger than what we would have been had it not occurred. And Father, as we look across our nation and see the tensions dividing us over a whole host of issues, political, racial, medical, Lord, I pray that you would heal our nation and unite us. Don't let uh, Satan grab a foothold in a kind of bitterness that would cause us to hate and destroy. And Father, I pray that as we interact with the sorrows of our lives this morning and begin to rethink suffering, I pray that you would speak to us in a real and a powerful and in a personal way. Uh, that we might see your good hand and good plan uh, over all things and worship you for who you are. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin a new series today uh, on suffering called Rethinking Suffering. We'll be spending five weeks on it. And I would assume that many of us have something burning in our lives that and maybe we feel like we're literally burning. Maybe it's pain. Um, something that God wants to use these weeks to speak to you about, to escort you through um, with some help, with some seeing the bigger picture, uh, even how to address the suffering you're going through. Diane Dokos Kim. Uh, and her husband were missionaries to Uzbekistan. And they came home in uh, late, 19, or late 2003. They had a, a son who was a year old. And as he was growing up, they were not seeing the kinds of things they expected to see from a healthy boy. And eventually they were referred to a pediatric neurologist after his examination, he wrote some things on a four by eight uh, card and slipped it across to Diane and her husband. And their world cratered. This is what he'd written. Moderate to severe autism, severely disabled, mentally retarded, cognitively impaired, nonverbal, prognosis unknown. In the year or so to come, they would wrestle with the prospect that their son might never speak, he would never go to college, he would never get married, and probably would be dependent on them and others for the rest of his life. Someone has written, when you have a disabled child, your life will never get better. And Diane, in her book, Unbroken Faith, writes that for the next five years, she had a running fight with God. She was wondering why, after we've served you faithfully in the mission field, now her husband was in full-time ministry here in the U.S., why do we, this, this is the result? The kinds of questions that she had are questions that we have. Uh, those and many more. Some people have a disabled child. Others are lonely, perhaps Divorce has occurred, or they lost a spouse through death, or their friends have abandoned them. Others are paralyzed. Some are poor. Others are victimized. The fact of the matter is, suffering 
is the human condition. Suffering is the human condition. There's no one who escapes it. What distinguishes us from one another when it comes to suffering is simply the kind, the intensity, and the duration of suffering. So your friend, your spouse, your colleague at work, your teammate is going through some kind of suffering. The only thing that distinguishes you from them is the kind of suffering you're going through, the duration of suffering that you're going through, and the intensity that you're going through. There is one more thing that distinguishes us from each other, and that is what suffering does to us. What suffering does to us, or to put it in more biblical terms, how we react to suffering. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to rethink suffering. And if you're following the notes, let me just give you three ways that we're going to rethink. One, we're going to rethink why there is suffering, and that will be our focus today. Rethink why there is suffering. Secondly, we're going to rethink suffering's presence in our life. We're going to rethink its presence in our lives. And lastly, rethink our reaction to it. Rethink our reaction to it. Before we dive into the meat of the message, uh, let's ask God for his help. Father, we come to you as fellow sufferers. Even when we're not experiencing pain ourselves, even when we're not experiencing betrayal ourselves, even when we're not experiencing um, unpleasantness ourselves, it's all around us. As Pastor Brandon was praying earlier, we, we, we are living in a broken, messed up world. All we have to do is tune into the news. Today we're reeling from a man who was killed in Minneapolis because an officer wouldn't let him up, his knee, across, his knee across the man's neck as he pleaded, I can't breathe. And whether it's racism or just human inconsideration of other human beings, we are all both um, recipients of the problem and part of the problem. We're meandering through unparalleled times both in our country and our world with a viral epidemic that we wouldn't have contemplated nine months ago, nor would we have contemplated the steps that have been taken by those in authority to try to make sure the pandemic doesn't overwhelm our health system. And we get upset and we get frustrated, we get angry and we grieve. And every time we have those kinds of responses, whether it is to injustice, whether it is to pain, whether it is to um, decisions that we disagree with that are causing hurt and harm, despair. We are reminded that we live in a broken world and it has been broken since the days of Adam. And I pray in these weeks that we might find not just reinforced, yep, it's bad, <laughs> but that in the midst of it, we would discover there's great hope, as Pastor Brandon reminded us last week. But the hope has to be found in the right place. The hope has to be found in the right things. When we misplace our hope in the wrong um, facet of life, the devastation is uh, piled up on. <laughs> it's, it, it becomes greater than it was. And so I pray for these weeks that we would find our great hope exactly where you point us to have it. And then in doing so, our world might change even though our world doesn't change. That our 
thoughts might change even though the pain doesn't. And that our despair, despair might be replaced by anticipation and confidence and even worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in the book uh, in your Bibles if you have them, uh, your smartphone. First chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to talk about paradise today. The title of my message is Paradise Lost. And we're starting today to try to understand why it is that suffering invaded paradise and what it does and doesn't tell us about God as well as ourselves. So let's talk first about Paradise Given. Uh, in her book, The Idiot, a novel written by Elif Bauterman, she makes the statement, there is no suffering if you don't want anything. There is no suffering if you don't want anything. And that's basically um, just Buddhism in a, in a line. Buddhism says that suffering is the, the formal noble truths of Buddhism are that suffering exists. And it exists because of um, longings or because of desires. And the way to get rid of suffering is to get rid of desires. And then they tell you how to do that. Right thinking, right belief, right, um, right doing, and so forth. The eight, uh, eightfold path. There is no suffering if you don't want anything. And to a degree, there's truth in that. So for example, the couple who's trying desperately to have a child, and they can't seem to. If you simply give up wanting a child, then you don't suffer anymore. Uh, if, if the family that is impoverished wants to have a better income so that they can have a better life, if they stop wanting a, a, a better life, then the suffering stops. Of course, there are, there are very um, significant wants that are not uh, only desirable but necessary. So let's say the father doesn't simply want a better income so that he can have a better life, better house, a car, a TV, but he just wants to be able to feed his families. How do you get rid of that want and thus no longer suffer? That mentality can only take you so far. That kind of rigid um, self-denial is only going to take you so far. And in fact, it's not biblical Christianity. The Bible talks about every good and perfect gift coming from above and that everything, if it received a prayer and thanksgiving, is is we should find delight in the good gifts that we have and there's nothing wrong with desiring additional gifts. So there's some truth that there is no suffering if you don't want anything, but the problem is that even if you don't want anything, suffering is going to exist. And Buddhism offers no explanation from where, uh, explanation about where this suffering originated. It doesn't tell us, oh, one day X happened and now there's suffering in the world. Or uh, we have suffering in the world because of this and we can purge it for good. Even though they try to say that. There's really no explanation, no help in understanding suffering's origins. And unlike that, those of us who are Christians or Jews have an answer. And it's found in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 after God created everything that he'd made, he created the, uh, the heavens and the earth, he, he created the dry land and the seas, and he filled the seas with fish and mammals, he filled the skies with birds, and he filled the dry land with uh, creatures and reptiles, and we have uh, insects, mosquitoes, and spiders, and we have lions and tigers and wolves and kittens and dogs. And then the capstone of his creation, he created man and he created woman. And when all of this was finished and God looked around at everything he had made, he says in verse 31 of Genesis 1, and it was very good. Now we say something's very good when we're happy with how it turned out. There might be a flaw or two in it, but we're happy with how it turned out. If you're a basketball team in the NBA, you, have 80, you play 82 games in a season. 
and you win 70 of them. You say, we had a, we had a very good season. That's not how God used the, the phrase very good. If you were a basketball team that played 82 games and you won 82 games, that's the sense in which God is saying it's very good. He looks around at all that he has made and there's not a flaw in sight. There's no flaw in the environment. There's no flaw in the animals he's created, the birds. He's no, there's no flaw in the night and day. There's no flaw in the seas. There's no flaw in the dry land. There's no flaw in the people he's made. There's simply no flaw. And so he has put man and woman in the garden and there's, there's no flaw for them to experience. Every day they get up and the temperature's perfect. They're, they need no house to protect them from the elements because there's no rain, there's no snow yet, there's no cold. There are no predatorial animals. The Bible says that when the animals were made that they were originally vegetarians and God gave them the, the, the greenery that he had created for their food. And that was the same, that was true for Adam and Eve as well up until the time of the flood. So everything was perfect. Husband and wife get along, there's no quarrels with them. Can you think about the most perfect day that you've ever had in your life. Maybe it's a vacation day when you had with your family. You're at the beach and it was just one of those days that the sun was out, the temperature was perfect, the humidity was, was not high. Uh, you had an amazing conversation with one of your friends or somebody in your family. Uh, if you're with your family, <clears throat> excuse me, your kids didn't quarrel with each other. It was a perfect day. Can you imagine having a perfect day every day? Tomorrow you're going to get up and say, I mean, I hope that today is as good as yesterday. You'd always know it was going to be just as good as yesterday was. That's what life was like for Adam and Eve. It was paradise. In chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden. So here's paradise, Adam. And he placed him in, in it not just to enjoy it, but to tend and watch over it. In other words, he had a responsibility for the garden. It wasn't just his just to enjoy, it was his to care for. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. You are sure to die. So there is this caution. I've given you a perfect paradise. Enjoy it to its fullest. Take care of it with all the skill I've given you. But I have one restriction I'm going to place on you. Don't eat from that tree. Paradise given. We get to chapter 3 of Genesis and all of a sudden paradise is lost. Here's what happened. Verse 1. <clears throat> the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden. Now, this is a, just a reminder that Satan is a habitual liar. He knew what God had said, yet he didn't ask the woman, did God say, and then quote what God said. He changed it. He knew that God had not forbidden them from eating tree, from trees in the garden, just one, but he made it sound like it was really a lot worse than it was. And what's interesting is Eve responded to him with a lie of her own. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, which God never said. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that you're eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. You will be like God knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her and so she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave to some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. 
And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When God said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die, he didn't mean that the moment you ate it, you would drop over, but rather, you would eventually die. Corruption would begin to afflict your body. It's going to break down. It's, the lungs are going to wear out. The heart's going to wear out. The, the blood will thin out. There's going to be problems as you age. You will eventually die. And not only will you eventually die, but the things that you now, uh, you now enjoy are going to be changed. The, the things that you now think and how you relate to the other creatures that I've made, it's all going to be different. And this is why. Verse 16, God had gone looking for Adam and Eve, can't find them. Uh, they admit that they're in hiding. He's, why are you hiding? He's, we, we're naked. How do you find out you're naked? Because it says at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. In other words, they didn't see nakedness as a problem. But now their eyes have been opened to a new reality. And the first thing that they notice is their nakedness. And God asks them, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? And Adam right away says, yeah, but it was her fault. And Eve right away says, yes, but it was the serpent's fault. And God says, because you have done this, everything is cursed. And he goes first to say, the serpent is going to be cursed this way. And then he gets around to the man and woman, verse 16. He said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, remember, he had been tasked with taking care of the garden. He had been tasked with tending it. And in his first big test, totally failed. He not only did, failed to remind the woman what God had said, but he went along with her to defy what God's wishes were. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made, you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Three things that happened, three realms were changed because of the curse. The first was that damaged, it damaged human life. It damaged human life. Remember, God said, you're going to die ultimately if you disobey me this way. And so Paul tells us in Romans 5.12 that since by one man, referring to Adam, since by one man sin came into the world, death came to everyone, all the people who would follow Adam and Eve, death came to every human being as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Because we now have a sin nature in us. Uh, we can sit around and blame Adam and Eve for where we've come to, but the fact of the matter is all of us confirm our own rebelliousness by choosing to sin as well. We have this in nature, we're inclined to sin, and then we always will sin. So a damaged human life. God talks about how it's going to be more painful for a woman now when she gives birth. Um, sickness has entered the world, disease has entered the world, the kinds of things that will lead to death. Uh, death is entered, has entered the world. Uh, death for human beings, death for the creatures in the sea, on the in the skies and on land. Work is going to become tiring. Uh, I understand that prior to this, we had work. Adam had work to do, but it wasn't tiring. Poverty is now a possibility, and poverty is hard. Damage human life. The curse also damaged human relationships. For example, it made spouses enemies. Did you see at the end of verse 16, I will, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, neither of these lines represent God's intention. 
He doesn't intend for the woman to rule, uh, uh, to, to control her husband, and he doesn't intend for the husband to rule over you. He intends for the husband to lead, but the picture here is something dysfunctional. And so the woman is trying to grasp what is not hers, the leadership in the relationship. Uh, that, was, that was given to Adam before this. And he, in turn, is going to respond to her attempt to take his role, and he's going to put her down harshly. In no sense is this a, um, a recipe that God is giving for human relationships and marriage. This is the dysfunction. This is what you're going to be inclined to do, wife. Husband, this is what you're going to be inclined to do. This is the reason that marriage is so hard. Because we are both these sinners that are, that are inclined to bring friction and tension and conflict to the marriage rather than humble ourselves and bring healing to the marriage. This is the reason that the marriage is not automatic. We date for a few months or a few years and then we can, we're convinced, man, this is going to go swimmingly. I thought when I got married, I was just gonna go out and work, bring home my paycheck and give it to my wife and I can go out and play, do as I please. I didn't realize that marriage is gonna take a lot of work. And that's the second most glorious gift that God has ever given mankind. But it's not automatic. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of asking forgiveness because it's part of the curse. It made spouses enemies. It made brothers enemies. On to chapter 4, verse 6. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. It's interesting. The language that we just looked at at the end of 3.16 is identical in Hebrew with the, this verse. There's this sins trying to get this and you're going to do this. And then one day, it, it says one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Made brothers enemies. This curse made brothers enemies. And this curse made people enemies. Going on in chapter four, just people in general, verse 23. One day Lamech said to his wife, wives, Ada and Zella, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. You see this, uh, this, this strain, this friction developing between people. You do this to me, I'm gonna do that to you. Made people enemies. It damaged human life, it damaged human relationships, but let's not kid ourselves. It, it damaged everything else. It damaged everything else. Look at Romans chapter 8. And just a note, Romans chapter 8 is the most important text in all the Bible, uh, second to the early chapters of Genesis, to understand both the, uh, what happened, how things are now, and how they will be in the future when it comes to this curse. Romans 8 the first sentence in verse 20 says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Did you notice? He doesn't say Satan's curse. What was imposed in Genesis chapter three on all of God's creation was a curse by God's hand. And as a result, all against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. As a result, animals became predators. Some of them actually killed their own children. Many of them killed other species' children, their eggs, their young. Wolves, lions, tigers, bears. We have carnivores all of a sudden. We have hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, things that didn't exist before the curse. There are droughts. There are plagues of locusts. Right now, there are uh, 
locust plagues in Central Asia, Pakistan, Eastern Africa. Some of the pictures I've been seeing are absolutely amazing. Three, four inch locusts draped, dozens and dozens of them draped on a man's shirt, his, his clothing covered with them. Photographs of the horizon that you can't see the horizon because of all the locusts flying in front of the camera picture. These are the kinds of things that are damaged as a result of the curse. Damaged human life, damaged human relationships, damaged everything else in creation. And as a result, when we get sick, when a spouse walks out on us, when a child uh, goes astray or when a child is born with a disability, uh, when we have serious financial reversal, so much so that we're not sure how we're ever going to pay the bills, maybe even buy food. You know, we have a, a, almost a quarter of the workforce in this country out of work. There are all kinds of sufferings that we are experiencing, and we ask uh, nagging questions. Nagging questions like this, and I want to give you five. Is this Satan's attack? Is this Satan's attack? And I'll just tip you off. The answer to four out of the five of these questions is going to be yes. Is this Satan's attack? Yes. We look at the book of Job and see what he experienced. And even though God gave permission to Satan to attack Job, it was Satan's doing. He lost all of his wealth. He lost the honor he had in the community. He lost the reputation he had. He lost his family. Ten children and their spouses were killed. He lost his flocks, his herds, the men who were tending those flocks and herds. He lost everything except his wife. And then he lost his health as well. Why? It was Satan's doing. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verse 16, about this woman who, who's been tormented by some sort of bleeding disease for 18 years. Jesus assigns it its cause to Satan. This daughter of Abraham has been kept prisoner by Satan for these 18 years. And so, yes, the suffering that you are going through is an attack by Satan. But it's not only an attack by Satan. You are not alone in that suffering situation because God is there too, just like he was with, with Job. God is there in the midst of this. Now, the objective that Satan has in mind is destruction. He is out to ruin you with the suffering that you are experiencing. But God is there with you also in the midst of the suffering, and he is also using the suffering. Only his purpose is to refine you. Read 1 Peter chapter 1. Actually, read the whole book of 1 Peter and talk about how God means to use suffering and how we should conduct ourselves in suffering. And does not mean that we don't ask God to relieve us from suffering. We're going to talk about that next week in more detail. But rather, to understand and appreciate that in the midst of whatever you're going through, whatever you are going through this week, this month, this year, what your family is going through, that God is there in the middle of it with you. And he is working out his great and glorious and God-honoring and people-fulfilling plan in your suffering to make you more and more like Jesus, to strip away what is uh, perhaps a deeply rooted or even moderately rooted self-confidence and exchange it for a Christ confidence, to make us less and less selfish and more of, more of a servant. We'll talk about that in four weeks to a greater extent. So is this Satan's attack? Yes. It's just that's not the end of the story. And then a question that, is unavoidable when we, if we believe that in the midst, as the scriptures tell us, in the midst of suffering, God's got a hand in it. Does that mean God is evil? Does that mean that God's evil? It's easy to 
detach God from our suffering and say, he has nothing to do with it, bad things just happen, God's kind of willy-nilly out there, he can't do anything about it. Ooh, wait a minute. If your God can't do anything about it, if he's not in it, then he's not God. If he is God, and he is in suffering, then can I conclude that God is evil? This is the only answer that is no in these questions. And don't forget, this was the argument of Satan with Eve in Eden. Did God really say? And then when he gets the report of God, what God said, or at least half-truth of what God said, he says, God doesn't want you to be like him. God's selfish. He wants to keep all the blessings and all the wisdom and all the power to himself. He doesn't want you to be a competitor to him. God's evil. And of course, it turned out that wasn't the case. In fact, by listening to Satan and his lies, Adam and Eve brought evil on the whole world through this curse. Is God evil? No. You know what? The only thing that God owes us is judgment, wrath, and hell. That's all he owes us. And yet God gives us the cross. God gives us the love and the mercy and, 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 and the hope and the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ by him paying for our sins, dying on the cross, so that if we put our faith in him, we can be restored to God. We deserve nothing but hell. And yet there stands the cross. Listen, I don't have the answer to, I was going to say any, what I, what I should say. I don't have ans the answer to, um, or I was going to say some. I don't have the answers to any explanation for your suffering. I read an article recently that says we, we have a bad habit as Christians. We have a bad habit of overanalyzing our suffering. We try to say, I suffer this way, and it's because of this. And in the vast majority of cases, we're wrong anyway. We're wrong anyway. You see, in suffering, we, were, we are left without a lot of answers. But to this question, is God evil? The cross should put the final stake in the ground. If we have nothing else to go on, should put the final stake in the ground to say, no, God is not evil. Third question, well, was I evil? I cannot tell you how many times over the years I have been asked by people who are suffering deeply in a way that maybe they never expected to suffer. And they wanna know if they did something wrong in their life, some particular sin that maybe they don't even remember, that is the explanation for what they're now going through. Was I evil? Well, the answer to that question on the surface is yes. <laughs> All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. So yeah, you were evil. But the, if you're asking, did I do something so spectacularly awful that this is the result, then the answer is probably not. Probably not. Because one of the things that we... Um, fail to misunderstand is just how awful our small sins are. And to think that we have some sin that's bigger than all the rest that would prompt this is a unbiblical conclusion. An unbiblical conclusion. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. Even if you did do some horrifically awful sin it, that's in your mind, worse than all the rest. Jesus paid for that sin on Calvary as well. Jesus paid it all. And, and so if you uh, are suffering in a certain way, you should probably not be rummaging around in your life to say, oh, what sin, you know, what this, what that. Now, that's not to say that God does not discipline his children because he does. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, because God loves you, and because you're his child, he disciplines you. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, beginning verse 5, and have you, he's speaking to all Christians, 
And have you forgotten the encouraging words that God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up. In other words, don't lose heart. Don't, don't say, I can't do this. Don't, lose, don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. <laughs> now, you know, if you're a child and your parents discipline you, you might not find that encouraging, but it's supposed to be. Have you forgotten the encouraging words? It's encouraging that God disciplines you. Why? Because he doesn't discipline his people who aren't his children. The writer goes on to say that uh, an, an earthly father who doesn't discipline his child doesn't really love him. If you're a mom or dad and you refuse to discipline your children or you only discipline them when it's convenient for you or you only discipline them in a light way that really doesn't have any effect in changing their uh, behavior or, or more importantly their heart, then the Bible says you don't really love your child. No matter how much you shower them with material blessings, no matter how much you cuddle them and show them affection, no matter how many nice things you do to them, or for them. You don't really love them because God the Father loves his children and he disciplines us. And earthly fathers and mothers who love their children also discipline them. Now, here's, here's the key, though, in understanding the discipline in the Christian life. If God is disciplining you, you will know it. There won't be any confusion in your mind about what the discipline is for. There is a scenario in your life that God is trying to steer you away from, lure you away from, to remind you this, this is disastrous. You can't keep following this. This is going to end badly for you. He's going to make it clear what he is what he is trying to take you away from. But the discipline of simply changing our lives to be more and more conformed by Jesus Christ, that might not be as clear. And we should give thanks to God for the discipline that he brings into our lives because we know he loves us. But stop trying to connect, oh, I'm suffering this in this way. I must have done something in the past this way or I'm doing it now. Now, if there's nothing that comes evident to your mind, you should not draw that conclusion. Fourth question, is God unfair? Answer, yes, he is. And you, the last thing in the world you want for God to be is fair. Because if he is fair, then he could not show mercy, he could not show grace, he could not show love. He would have to, he would have to rightfully condemn and judge us and send us all to hell, which is what we so richly deserve. Let me go down the road a little bit further though, because I think when we ask this question, is God unfair, is, we don't mean, is he being fair to all humanity? We mean, is he being fair to us as it relates to all the other people we know in our lives? My son is paralyzed. None of the sons uh, or daughters of my other friends are paralyzed. Uh, I, I have cancer. I, I, there's nobody else in my circle right now that has terminal cancer. And, and we could go on and on. We look at things that seem to be, I have this problem and other people in my circle don't have this problem. Why me and not them? Or why has somebody else been delivered of their cancer and I haven't been? What we really mean is compared to other people, why has this been brought into my life? Let me say a couple of things about this. Mainly it's a, first of all, it's a one-eyed assessment. It's a one-eyed assessment. We have one eye shut. We only have our eyes open to the sufferings that have been brought into our lives. But what about all the blessings that are in our lives already? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we're, we're, we are deserving of God's judgment, and yet he's given us all these blessings. My guess is that most of you watching, probably all of you, have electricity in your home. 
you know that a quarter of the world's population still doesn't have electricity? Do your children go to school? I don't mean these days of COVID-19 lockdown. I mean, will they go back to school in the fall or whenever they open classes up again? Or do your children get schooling online that they don't have to pay for? 260 million children around the world don't go to school, can't go to school. In many places they have to pay for it and parents don't have the money. Are you employed? Now I know during these days there are a lot of people that are unemployed, but we're prayerfully hopeful that that's going to change sometime soon. Do you realize that there are people around the world who were unemployed and were unemployed for a long time before COVID-19 came along? In fact, that marks their economies, a lot of unemployment. Last year in Venezuela, almost half of the people were out of work, 44% of the people unemployed. And even if you're unemployed, some of you have been getting unemployment benefits. Many of you have been getting, if you're in the United States, have been getting bail, uh, uh, stimulus checks from the government. What's your expected lifespan? If you're an American, if you're in this country, 78 years. I was in Laos a couple of times and the average lifespan when I was there was 50 years old. Today, Central African Republic, lifespan, life expectancy, 52 years old. There's, there's a lot of blessings that you have been given and even in the midst of terrible suffering, there are things that you have been given that you don't deserve. And I, I wanna encourage you to open both eyes, not only the eye that sees the suffering and the things that God has failed to give, in, give you that he's given others, but the things that he has given you that maybe some others don't enjoy. Is God unfair? Yes and no. Um, he's unfair in, in the fact that he has blessed us mightily in ways that he hasn't blessed others. Last question, will this suffering ever end? You're in the midst of a dark season in your life. You wanna know, will this suffering ever end? If we wanna ask the question about all suffering, then the answer is no, at least not in this lifetime. There will never be a time when all suffering will come to an end until God creates a new heaven and new earth. However, the particular suffering that you are in right now, nobody knows. And I wanna encourage you, if, if, if you're the one that's trying to minister to somebody else in the midst of suffering, don't offer them unpromised hope. Pastor Brandon talked about this last Sunday about the, uh, the ill-advised um, getting our confidence and say, we're suffering in this right now and I'm gonna put my confidence in, in the idea that God's gonna heal me by Christmas. Maybe he won't. The Bible doesn't guarantee that you'll be healed. God still heals. God has healed. God will heal. But he doesn't heal everyone. We'll see that, talk about that in the coming weeks as well. Uh, my life is going to, I've had a, a run of bad luck, but I'm confident my life's going to get better by the time my birthday rolls around. You shouldn't tell somebody that, and we shouldn't assume that for ourselves. That's not necessarily the case. Or things will get better if I find the right doctor. I've gotten a second opinion with my pain in my back and hip. Uh, had surgery last fall that not only didn't help, but I got worse. So I found another doctor, got a second opinion, and we're kind of taking some steps, and I'm probably going to be looking at some additional surgery, and I'm reluctant to go back to him and, and begin going down that road because I'm not sure I want to risk the surgery. I don't know that my future's going to get any better. It might be worse. It, this might be as good as it gets. We don't have the confidence, unless God's spoken to you clearly, we don't have any confidence that things are going to get better at a certain time or even at all. Here's, here's something that I've had a number of people to say to me over the years. They're going through a season of, of hardship and they say, I, I hope I soon learn whatever it is that God's trying to teach me through this suffering. And I, I'm not sure where this has come from, but there's this widely held notion that 
suffering is designed to teach us some specific lesson and then God's going to take the clamps off at some point once we get it down firm. Listen, suffering is not a single lesson. First of all, because we're suffering throughout all of our life. Suffering comes, some suffering comes and goes, but there's always suffering. Suffering is not a single lesson. Suffering is a curriculum. And it's a curriculum with which God is being transformed, is transforming us into more and more into the image of Christ, if we will let it do that. All we can be sure of is that suffering is only for a season. That season might be months, that season might be weeks, that season might be years. The good news is that season is going to come to an end at this, the end of this life. And that brings us to our third point, paradise reborn. Because the Bible tells us that God is going to return his own, not everyone, but his own, those who have been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, he's going to return us to paradise one day. Eden is going to be realized again by his own. Again, going back to Romans 8, the end of that verse that we read earlier, the end of verse 20, but with eager hope, the creation, that spans not just humanity, but all creation, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And then verse 23, and we believers also groan. He's talking about groaning in this life through all of its sufferings and difficulties. We as believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of this future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And then he goes on to say, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. So in other words, if you already have a healed body, all your relationships are healed, yada, 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 you don't have anything to hope for because you've got it all now. If we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And Revelation gives us a, a little bit of the picture of what this reborn paradise is going to be like. Revelation 21, beginning verse 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Next chapter, 22, verse 3. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. There will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, assuming no need to sleep either. And they will reign forever and ever. This is what awaits us. But in this life, suffering endures. By it, in it and through it, we also have fellowship with Christ, a, a, a linking with Christ that will draw us a little bit of the way toward this paradise that is waiting for us. Again, we'll touch on that in weeks to come. So my title for this sermon, Paradise Lost, was stolen from John Milton. Uh, nobody has more influenced English literature down through the ages than Shakespeare. But by common agreement, uh, after Shakespeare, John Milton has influenced lit uh, English literature more than any other writer. So he wrote, the, wrote this book, uh, really it's an epic poem, 12 books long, over 10,000 unrhymed verses that he dictated to his daughter because he was blind. And it is the biblical story of Satan's rebellion as well as humanity's rebellion but it also reflects the human longing for redemption. If someone would just buy me back and take me back to paradise, but paradise is lost. About four years later, John Milton wrote another poem, a shorter one, 
on the urging of a friend. It was entitled, not Paradise Lost, but Paradise Regained. And it spoke about great reversals, namely the return to paradise. And what was the biblical story that Milton used for this reversal? It was that Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. That unlike Adam, when faced with the temptation of Satan, the son obeyed his father instead of disobeyed him. And thus, Jesus opened a door for everyone who will bow the knee to him to one day experience the deep longing of paradise that you have and I have and everyone has in their heart and a craving to, to come back to it. Paradise regained. The good news is it can be through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray for brothers and sisters who are watching this morning and who are suffering. It might be a physical pain of cancer or diabetes or MS or Crohn's disease or um, vertebrae problems or um, maybe they're paralyzed, paralyzed. It might be the suffering of a disabled son or a, a daughter who has uh, been chasing the wind and is uh, drug addicted and maybe selling her body to buy those drugs. It may be a broken relationship, a romantic relationship, or a broken marriage. Uh, it, it could be any number of things. I want to pray for brothers and sisters, and, and I want to pray your encouragement and uh, reinforcing their hope and their faith. Not that the suffering is going to pass. Praying that will, it will, but not banking on that, but, but banking on the Lord Jesus Christ being with them through it all. And banking on the love that you have for them because of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're a much-loved son or daughter of Jesus. And therein lies their confidence of a loving Father who, yes, carries them through suffering when they don't feel like they can walk anymore on their own. And I do pray for relief. God, you've promised that you'll never put us through something that you don't give us the strength to endure. And you know where that's at. You know where that stands with everyone that I'm praying for right now. And I pray that you would relieve according to your great insight, wisdom, and mercy. And that in all things, we might, as we suffer faithfully, we might be testimonies to those watching that there is hope in Jesus Christ. We see lives that are transformed in such a way that they can even endure suffering, not stoically, but confidently in the knowledge that it is their Heavenly Father that carries them through it. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for dying for our sins. And may we faithfully serve you until that day when paradise is reborn for us and we see you face to face. We pray this. In your matchless name, amen. Okay, so thanks for worshiping with us this morning. There are four ways that you can continue to interact with us. Uh, there's a little button on the streaming option called Live Prayer, and we would love to be able to interact with you. Uh, fellowship is tough online, but we can still connect in a personal way if you click that link and let us know how we can be praying for you. If you are looking for more help from Keystone and uh, have needs that... Uh, the body of Christ should come alongside, uh, we'd love for you to let us know about those needs by contacting keystonechurch.org compassion and filling out the little survey there that would let us know how our compassion ministry uh, can come alongside and help you. As a body of Christ, we want to be a strong body and take care of our members, and we want to know if there are parts of our body that are hurting, so please let us know. You can also continue to give to Keystone's mission. Uh, thank you for your generosity uh, and concern for us financially. Uh, you can give at keystonechurch.org slash give or through the Church Center app. Uh, or some of you who are still sending in checks in, thank you. Uh, we appreciate those as well. Lastly, there are some discussion questions that are at the end of the sermon notes. And the, the way that 
God is able to work in us is when we are thinking and mulling over. And so those questions, I'd encourage you to spend time alone or spend time with the group right now that you're with. Ask those questions and let the Holy Spirit continue to bring conviction uh, and bring encouragement as you wrestle with the concept of suffering. Uh, I've loved that time because as we as uh, pastors will shoot a video every uh, Tuesday or Wednesday and then publicize that to the internet to let you know, here's how Keystone's pastors are continuing to let the sermon from last week speak to us moving forward. And we look forward to being able to worship with you again soon, and we'll see you then.